Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi, welcome to episode 192. Today, I'm going to talk about the evolution of conversation and public perception of existential risk around AI. I'm going to use as a starting point my 2017 book, Crisis of Control, How Artificial Superintelligences May Destroy or Save the Human Race. Of course, there was an existential threat debate long before that. I didn't invent it. I'm just going to visit some of the things that I said in there and see how much public perception and narrative has changed since then with respect to a few specific notations and speculate on where it might be going. I thought I was going out on quite a limb at the time in giving such a sensationalist subtitle to the book. And truth be told, I was trying to grab some more eyeballs for precisely that reason. But it was also true that at that time, taking such a stance would expose one to ridicule from most of the technological community. And I certainly wasn't going to attract more kudos from the technological community by opening and closing with fictional chapters said in the future. But this book, like my most recent one, is written for as broad an audience as possible and not exclusively technologists. If you're listening to this podcast, and it seems that you are, then you are the target audience for those books. Now, in retrospect, it didn't hurt that the fictional chapter near the beginning described a world plagued, in the literal sense, by a global pandemic evolving through multiple strains, while there were artificial intelligences that could hold lifelike conversations with you and also write software to water. Sound familiar? And I was exercising what I thought was some literary license in setting that in the year 2027. I suppose it just goes to illustrate the truth of the saying, which is actually a law attributed to Roy Amara, that we overestimate what will happen in the next two years, but underestimate what will happen in the next 10. Now, in the context of the book, those viruses would have been man-made, although that was never spelled out in the fictional chapter, but that was what I was thinking about because a secondary theme of the book is the threat that we face from synthetic biology, the increasing ease with which people can create pathogens using technology such as DNA synthesizers and CRISPR. So that was certainly the origin that I had in mind for the viruses that I was writing about in that opening chapter. But on paper, at least, it does make me look somewhat more prescient than I had anticipated. The book ends with another fictional chapter set a further 10 years in the future, painting the rosiest of all possible outcomes of our co-evolution with advanced artificial intelligence. The message of the book was that while AI could pose an existential threat of its own, if we learned to master it and evolved ethically and morally to use it responsibly, it could end up saving us from the threat of lethal bioengineered pandemics. So the book does develop some of my first thinking and research about the existential threat, which was very unfamiliar to nearly everyone at the time the book came out. My goal 
was to make it more understandable and useful to as wide a population as possible. Like many other people, my thinking was heavily influenced by Nick Bostrom's 2014 book, Superintelligence. That is a seminal work on the existential risk question, held with some reverence in the minds and hearts of many in the community. It's important to note that Nick is a philosopher, not a computer scientist. He did not say, here's how we're going to get artificial superintelligence, or when that's going to happen, or even if it was likely to happen. He was simply doing philosophical thought experiments about what would happen if we did have computers that were many times more generally intelligent than we are. And as you might imagine from what has ensued, he found that things do not look like they would work out very well for us. Now, Bostrom's book received rapt attention from many quarters, notably including Elon Musk, who appears to have based a lot of his professional goals around it. Of course, Bostrom said nothing about any time frame in which we might be concerned about this technology actually developing, and as I concluded in my book, we don't know. And seven years later, we still don't know. But the estimates that people are making are certainly a lot closer in time now than they used to be. The proportion of researchers surveyed who think that it will never happen, or that it is hundreds of years in the future, has dwindled considerably. On the other hand, in 2017, there were some people saying that it would happen in five years, and obviously that hasn't happened. In my 2022 book, Artificial Intelligence and You, conveniently named after this podcast, I dig into the question of why this is so hard to predict. But back in 2017, it's fair to say that people who were working on the existential threat question of AI were characterized as being on the fringe. They would come in for some instant scorn. And quotable quotes from people like Andrew Ng, who said, worrying about AI taking over is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. And that was one of the more polite things that people said about that. But now... The conversation has become so normalized that I think there may be people jumping into it for the sake of hopping on a bandwagon. In particular, there's a whole notation for abbreviating where people stand on questions surrounding the existential threat. I'm referring to, among others, P-Doom and E-Stroke-Ack. I'll explain. It is one sign of people separating into tribes that they adopt cryptic labels for themselves as though they're sports teams. On one hand, these can be useful because you can use such a label in lieu of a lot of words. On the other hand, they push people into buckets and can force them into aligning themselves with camps that they don't completely believe in. So what does that letter salad mean? E-stroke-ack, which I'll just say is E-ack from now on, is short for effective acceleration. And that is the viewpoint that any harm from progress in technology is unlikely and outweighed by its benefit, and therefore we should go ahead with developing advanced technology as fast as possible. In particular, that would mean developing artificial general intelligence as quickly as possible. And the number of organizations who have that as an explicit goal has absolutely mushroomed. In 2017, I think DeepMind was the only company explicitly saying that, and it was on their homepage, that AGI was their goal. Now there are so many people saying it, it's practically a necessary line item on a Silicon Valley startup venture capital proposal. In opposition to EAC, we have EA, which stands for Effective Altruism. This is a movement that started out 
independent of AI and has a, as its focus, how can one do the most good for humanity? That kind of explicit optimization goal pegs the people behind it as having some kind of engineering background usually, and that's exactly where most of its support has come from. If you look at, for instance, what Bill Gates has done in the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation work, such as focusing on clean water supplies and providing vaccinations and eradicating mosquitoes throughout the third world, you can see that focus at work of let's maximize the number of lives that we can save. So people who call for a pause in AI development and training will often self-identify as EA. And this is a movement that has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 14 months, provoked by the public letters from the Future of Life Institute and the Center for AI Safety that called for a moratorium on large language model training and also said that AI posed a threat comparable to the one of nuclear weapons. Certainly, you could argue that the letters were naive in hoping that there would be any effect, and we've seen no evidence that model training paused. But on the other hand, GPT-5 did not come out in the next six months. So there's that. On the other, other hand, GPT-5 is now in development, as Sam Altman told the Financial Times last November, and rumors are that it will be out later this year. You can see the conflict between EAC and EA in OpenAI versus Elon Musk. OpenAI was founded as an EA nonprofit chartered to make AI safe, or to make safe AI, through open sourcing code so that it was developed ethically under the spotlight of public scrutiny. That's why it's named OpenAI. So they would open source it. Musk gave them $100 million to pursue that goal. But then he left the board and stopped funding them at a time they were incurring huge expenses in training models. So OpenAI created a for-profit arm that could charge fees that would fund those expenses. But now their code would no longer be open-sourced. Musk said that he was leaving due to conflict of interest with Tesla's AI development, but some insiders dispute this. And then OpenAI hit the jackpot with ChatGPT and got $10 billion from Microsoft. Another prominent member of the EA camp is Jeffrey Hinton, who is often known as the godfather of deep learning and really developed the field through a whole AI winter and has enormous standing in the community. He left his position with Google last year so he could talk about the dangers of AI without being beholden to an employer that was developing large amounts of it. Now, there's one way in which the EA and EAC camps might agree on the same course of action. It's a long shot, but see if it makes some sense to you. I heard it first some years ago on the now discontinued Concerning AI podcast, and the argument is that in order to make AGI safe, we should develop it as fast as possible. Now, if that sounds crazy, as it did to me to begin with, keep listening. A big fear about AGI, human-level intelligence, right? is that it will develop rapidly into ASI, artificial superintelligence, which will be far more intelligent than humans and we will be at its mercy, etc., etc. That rapid evolution is called the hard takeoff in X-risk circles, X-risk being what they call existential risk in existential risk circles, and they expect it would happen through 
recursive self-improvement, where the AI trains itself to get better at improving its own code. You can see how that might go. Well, we already have a handle on how to do that kind of coding, so the tall tentpole here is developing AGI itself, general intelligence. So why would you want to do that as quickly as possible? Because we should assume that the development of AGI is inevitable, that so many people want it, and it will eventually be so easy to develop that it's going to happen no matter what. When it does happen, if the hard takeoff starts, then the speed of that recursive self-improvement will be dictated by the hardware that we have then. And of course, hardware speed evolves and increases exponentially according to Moore's law and its successes. So if the hard takeoff happens sooner rather than later, we will have slower hardware, and therefore the progression to ASI will take longer. So we would have more time in which to observe what's happening and decide how to intervene. Whereas if we wait longer, it might be that AGI is developed one day, and we come back the next day to find it's already evolved into ASI. I'm not going to claim this is an unbeatable argument, because it isn't. And you won't hear it much, but it is worth thinking about. Now, the other piece of nomenclature I mentioned was P-Doom, which is written as P, open parenthesis, Doom, D-O-O-M, close parenthesis, in small letters. And in statistics, P, parentheses A, or P of A, is the probability of A happening. So this somehow evolved as a way of people saying what they believe the probability of human extinction due to AI is people will put something like P of doom equals 0.25 in their signatures as a way of signaling that they think there's a 25% chance of AI causing human extinction in, I think they usually mean 10 years, although that's also one of the ways in which this metric is not well thought out because it's meaningless without stating what time frame it applies to. I think how different it means if it's talking about the next year or the next century. But now people differentiate themselves based on this number and it irritates the heck out of me because most of them have no understanding of probability theory and will say things like their P-doom is 10% and so that means they're optimistic. No, if the probability of the human race going extinct in the next 10 years is even 0.1%, that would be an all-hands-on-deck global emergency. Some people would hear that and think, oh, well, that means we have 10,000 years until it's going to happen, multiplying 0.1% or 1,000th. Uh, by 10 years, there's plenty of time to figure out what to do. No, that's not how it works. Allow me to point out, by the way, that in the last week, at the time of recording, two cities in Southern California, Oxnard and San Diego, both saw flooding from what have been called thousand-year storms, meaning that they were expected to occur once in a thousand years, and more are on the way as I say this. I like to play poker with people whose understanding of probability is this unevolved. And that's one thing. But the future of the human race should not be decided or influenced by people who would draw to an inside straight. So I wish the whole P-Doom thing would go away. Yes, we need some better ideas of how likely various paths towards advanced AI are. No, the way to get that is not by some kind of vote between people wearing buttons with their guesses on. The best part of this is that the existential risk debate is at least out there, more widespread, taken more seriously by more people. And we've seen shifts in policymaking, like the Biden administration's executive order and the UK AI Safety Summit, 
that show that politicians are responding to the higher level of public conversation and at least recognizing that they have permission to undertake these things from the electorate. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, Getty Images CEO Craig Peters said that generative AI has created more images in the past year than were taken in the history of lens-based photography. I'll repeat that. Getty Images CEO Craig Peters said that generative AI has created more images in the last year than were taken in the history of lens-based photography. This is not actually our main headline because that's all there is to it, but that was too gobsmacking to pass up. I wish I knew how he arrived at that number, but it's not hard to imagine it might be true. On the other hand, that would count all of the images that were created and thrown away as no good. Even so, it's fairly amazing when you try to compare the number of people using Gen AI versus the number of people that have ever held a camera. Our main headline today is research from Meta, yes, that Meta, that shows that using magnetoencephalography, had to practice that one a bit, we will call it Meg going forward, AI can, well, read your mind. MEG is a non-invasive neuroimaging technique in which thousands of brain activity measurements are taken per second, and the AI can decode the unfolding of visual representations in the brain with an unprecedented resolution on the time axis, which means that they were able to show someone a picture for only one second, and their system could read the brainwaves and present a reconstructed stream of images showing the visual images in the subject's brain as they changed over time. Now, this has been done before using fMRI, which actually produces more accurate images, but only one at a time. What Meg can do is reconstruct images at many, many frames per second, showing how the image in the subject's brain is changing during the time they're looking at the picture. There's a lot of potential there for understanding more about what the human brain is doing. Listener Jesse Powell wrote in to react to an earlier show about AI and jobs where I was talking about how capital tends to accrete towards the creators of high technology and away from the people whose jobs might be displaced by it and that this is a runaway feedback cycle. And he had some ideas that I think are so powerful that I'm going to quote him directly here. Begin the quote from Jesse. Under the current economic slash political system, AI will only exacerbate the problem on inequality. The only solution, in my opinion, is to take the monetary system out of the hands of humans altogether. The only path to a functioning, robust universal basic income is to deploy a national, regional, or global digital currency on blockchain, in which digital money is continually automatically redistributed with each block round. Every account holding currency would be subject to a small tax every three seconds or five or ten, whatever the block time, the sum total of which would accrue to a general account and then be distributed to all account owners equally. This would automatically inhibit the dominance of finance and rent-seeking economic forces and shift the economy towards more productive and human-centered efforts. The per-block tax rate would be a tiny fraction of a percent, but would add up over the course of a year to a 20% tax rate, or 30% or 40%, depending on which models show the best utility. This approach sidesteps the difficulties of collecting taxes from AI firms and also obviates the need to constantly update the UBI, 
payout due to inflation legislatively. Also, if we move to a fully digital monetary system where all transactions are logged by a blockchain, it becomes much easier to root out fraud, illegal activities, automatically assign things like carbon and material footprint taxes, etc. Privacy can be secured by cryptographically hiding identity, such that AI can continually scan the blockchain for financial irregularities and compliance, but identity cannot be unlocked until there is probable cause and a court order. So that's the end of the quote from Jesse Powell there, our listener. That's a radical idea. At odds with how we do things right now, if not all of capitalism. Yes, but it's very clear that only radical ideas are going to have a chance of doing any real good against the massive capital reflows in the wrong direction that are likely to result from the automation of AI. So we'd better start coming up with some radical ideas. I'm pessimistic about anything like this actually being done, but if it isn't, things will only get worse. Next week, my guest will be Rachel St. Clair, co-founder and CEO of Simuli, and researching how to create human-like, conscious, artificial general intelligence. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.